Father, you have graced us with your presence through your spirit. We thank you for the grace that you give us and for the mercies that are new every morning. We ask that you uh, be with Jim as he teaches us, that he would be clear, that we would be receptive in our hearts and minds, uh, and we thank you for the fellowship and the, the grace that you have given us through our presence with one another. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Carolyn and I have the privilege from time to time to visit different churches and give counseling conferences and showing how the Bible applies to all of life. I've been doing this a long time, and I think I can say with pretty much certainty this is the first time I've ever been asked to come talk about depression. Uh, it's something that we cover in counseling class. It's one of the most common counseling problems, but it's not something like you expect a big turnout. You know, people come to talk about family and peacemaking and kids and marriage and things, and yet here you are, so that's good. Um, and so the way I'm gonna approach things, you were given the notes either this morning or last night, and I'm gonna start with an overview of depression, which I think is the third outline, and then I'm gonna work my way to the first and the second. And one thing I warn my students is the outlines are there. It can help you to feel like you don't have to take so many notes, but I tend to speak from my heart following the outline generally, rather than following it precisely. So if that frustrates you, please be gracious with me. And if you feel like, why did he skip over that? You can ask questions and I'll do my best to answer them. There are professors at my seminary that have their lectures online, and if you go to class, I mean, the jokes are the same. Uh, you know, it, it just, it goes, comes out the same way every time. I'm a from the heart outline preacher, not a manuscript preacher, not demeaning those who do otherwise, but that's who I am. And also just as I'm experiencing in my own life and working with people, the issue I'm talking about, I'm gonna to tend to speak from that rather than the notes that I wrote years ago that I update over time. So that's what to expect. Um, depression is something that has big, been a big issue in our culture. Uh, you can't watch much television or probably go on social media without getting ads for medications to make you feel better. And sometimes they'll talk about different, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, different feeling badly. <laughs> and it's one of those things that sometimes can be hard to describe where you know when you have it, you know when you're dealing with it. Uh, this is an area where psychology can be helpful. And to, to summarize my view of psychology briefly, but it, depression is an example of how we would deal with this, they're good at describing problems. They're, they're good at describing the human experience of problems. Just They can do this with anger and depression, a lot of other issues as well. And so like the diagnostic statistics manuals they come up with and they say, well, these are the characteristics of a depre major depressive order. They're in your notes, I'll skim them briefly. This is actually a good description and they, they have millions of dollars to have people look at other people and talk to other people and come up with these descriptions and, and that's good. Now, their interpretation of the data is flawed because they don't understand who man is, made in the image of God, fallen body and soul. They deny all that. So they're gonna have a bad interpretation of why people get depressed, we're gonna to get to that. And their prescriptions are often flawed because of their false view of man and their exclusion of the gospel is the answer to our spiritual problems. And they don't even regard spiritual problems the way we do. But again, the descriptions can be accurate. And so uh, you can look at the DSM and it talks about you know, feeling hopeless most of the day, not interested in activities, 
um, you know, either sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, weight loss, weight gain, uh, loss of energy, feeling worthless, indecisive, unable to concentrate, maybe suicidal ideation. And I will speak of this a bit personally, is that until about 20 years ago, I thought I had depression now and then, like many of you probably do. You go through a time of sadness, things are hard, you feel hopeless, everything's against you. And I would kind of cycle in and out of these things in my own life, going back to when I was a young Christian, when I was in high school. I did not enjoy that, but it was always pretty brief. And then it was actually almost exactly 20 years ago on a Sunday afternoon when we were talking to our 19-year-old son who was away at college. He was our oldest. And as we were speaking with him, and at this point all of our sons had made profession of faith. They were all involved in church. We thought we'd dropped him off at school to put him in a good PCA church. Everything was going well. He reveals to us that he just doesn't believe what we believe, that he's got a girlfriend who's a Buddhist, and he's Again, at the time it was very upsetting. I realized I admire now his honesty, you know, that he's not behaving morally and by my morals with her, that he's kind of declaring his independence. He still wants, but it was devastating, both to Caroline and to me. And that's how I learned what depression is experientially. You can read about it, you can talk to people, but when you go through it, you know, losing a spouse, losing a child. And actually, that's a very good summary definition of most depression is sad feelings because of loss. And I remember it was like the whole world seemed to be kind of black and white. It was, I felt like in doing my job, I continued to serve as a pastor and a counselor, but it was just like I was running up a steep hill that was made out of sand where I just, I was functioning at 40% and... It was really tough. It was, you know, fighting thoughts of sadness and despair and discouragement. And actually, we had more troubles not long after that with our youngest son, who was being influenced by the oldest son. Uh, I saw in Caroline as well. You know, she's the most cheerful person I've ever known in my life, the kindest person I've ever known in my life. And when I tell the story in another context, like, I've hardly ever seen her cry very much. But then there were buckets of tears. Um, and, you know, but this is often, and this is the part that the world may not understand about depression in the sense that it's not a disease most, in most cases. It's often just the way God has made us as we respond to hard things. Depression affects some people more than others. Like you guys have lots of little kids, right? Some little kids get more ear infections than others. Some people are prone to certain things more than others, and some people seem to be more prone to this. And interesting, some great men of God and women of God in history have really struggled with depression. And you read biographies of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, Bunyan. And when Bunyan describes being locked up in, giant, in, in Doubting Castle with giant despair tormenting him, I don't think he's just referring to things he heard about from other people. I'm pretty sure... If you've read Grace Abounding, the Chief of Sinners, you know, he, he struggled with those things. William Cooper, the great hymn writer and poet, uh, was suicidal very often. Um, there's a pretty good book by a friend, Zach Aswine, called Spurgeon's Sorrows. And Zach wrote the book. Originally, he had a contract for the book to talk about Spurgeon's depression and what had happened with Spurgeon when he was a very young man. He was preaching in a crowded venue. Someone screamed, fire. People trampled each other, many people died. 
And Spurgeon, at a young age, was almost ready to give up the ministry. But the, the memories of that, we would call it post-traumatic stress today, perhaps, in the lingo, those lingered for him for virtually a lifetime. And he, he wrestled with the dark, giant despair uh, so much throughout his life. And, and he talks about how some people are continually sad. Uh, again, just like, by the way, in this room, some of you are more prone to be anxious, fearful, uh, we all have different struggles, uh, angry, and among Christians, this can be also, uh, it can be insensitive, I guess sometimes we can be to each other. Uh, Proverbs eighteen, fourteen, and there are actually some funny Proverbs about sadness in one way. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but it's for a broken spirit who can bear it. There's another proverb about people who sing loud songs to those who are sad that, you know, people who are kind of bouncy, happy people, and they come along beside people like I am sometimes, and they just be happy, praise God, everything's wonderful, be thankful. And you, you just, I was going to say you want to strangle them, that would be very ungodly, but <laughs> just think, it's not that easy. Maybe it's easy for you, but it's not easy for me. Um... There's some people who have extreme highs and lows. It used to be called manic depressive. Now it's called bipolar. Uh, some people have higher highs and lower lows than others. Um, you know, there are various things. There's seasonal affective disorder where people living in the far north during winter, you know, lacking uh, sunlight have issues. There's recognition of there's some physical issues, postpartum depression. Uh, for some women, we had a missionary's wife who after each child, we actually just knew we needed to be in touch with her because she would go through a season of great struggle in postpartum depression. I admired her keep having babies. Um, and there are major depressive disorders. There are you know, more mild experiences that people have. One thing that I rely upon a lot is I have a friend, Dr. Charlie Hodges, who has done a lot of the teaching for IBCD and for ACBC. He is a medical doctor who's been practicing medicine for over 40 years. He's also an ACBC leader, fellow. Uh, he's written a book called Good Mood, Bad Mood. And he's been very helpful for me, kind of understanding from a medical doctor's standpoint, who's really strong both on the medicine side and the counseling side, that most depression, well, most of what people call depression is ordinary sadness. And your body isn't broken when you're sad. Your body's doing what it was designed to do. Our Lord Jesus himself uh, was a man of sorrows who bore our sorrows. And so sad, and, and we, we're in a culture where you're not supposed to feel badly. That, that if you feel bad, there, there should be some pill you should take or some experience you should have or something to just make it go away. And Dr. Hodges contends, and he would say also there's a lot of medical evidence. This isn't just biblical counselors by observation, that 90% of what people you know, who are labeled depression have is really just ordinary human sadness. And you know, we have a friend who, several, four or five years ago, their son, who was 13 years old, suddenly passed away. Um, other friends, you know, their son killed in a car crash when he was 15. Uh, your spouse betrays you, leaves you. Your child turns to a lifestyle that's ungodly. Um, this is sad, but 
part of sadness too is God uses sadness. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, verse 67, you know, that it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways, that God uses sadness. You know, sadness is not something just say, well, I just need to get rid of the sadness. I want to be comfortable. I want to be happy. Um, and by the way, even if you want that, there's not really a way that's going to happen anyway. Uh, some people try to medicate their sadness with alcohol. I had a friend uh, that has, you know, would probably be diagnosed as major depressive disorder. And he says the medicines have never worked for him, so he just drinks. I'm not happy about my friend telling me that, but it's an escape from the problem. And so, you know, how do we understand depression? Uh, it's not merely a disease. And this is where, because the scientific community trust the science we're told in our culture, well, these scientists have a worldview, and if the worldview says we've evolved, we're merely physical beings, they don't understand image of God, spiritual beings, fallen, sin. Um, yeah, that's what they're going to want to label it. They label a lot of things diseases because they don't understand who we are. Uh, we are Everything we do is in relation to God. It's either worshiping and honoring Him or it's defying Him. Um, but also with depression, there's not a pathology, according to Dr. Hodges. You can't get a blood test and say, oh, your serotonin level is off. I mean, like, I, I take thyroid medicine. They, take, they test my blood, they measure my levels, and they keep adjusting the medicine because there's some right level of thyroid supposed to be in your bloodstream. You know, some of you for cholesterol or blood pressure. You know, they're, they're, and there's a pathology of what causes many of the you know, diseases and problems like that. Well, there are no such tests, so far as I know, on, on the depression side, uh, it, it, for almost all these, I mean, if somebody, some people may feel depressed because of thyroid, and that may be able to help. They're free to do that. But generally speaking, it's you talk to somebody, they tell you how they feel, and then they start throwing uh, solutions at it. Um, and they want to make a, a diagnosis that's completely uh, free of values. Now, interestingly enough, you know, when you watch the commercials for Prozac and other things on tele television, they'll talk about chemical imbalance, and there's been a lot written. I've got a stack of articles here I'm not going to have time to read, but again, in the scientific community, uh, Psychology Today, other places, where the, the theory of chemical imbalance is by and large discredited. It's not saying that there aren't biological issues that contribute to depression. But you know, it's, it's easy for people to understand, oh, I'm like, it's like my thyroid. If I just take this medicine, it'll bump up my serotonin and I'll feel better. But there are no levels, there, even scientifically. Um, they'll even say on the websites, this medicine you know, will, yeah, it'll affect your moods, but in terms of how much or why, uh, they're often unsure. It's, it's much harder to diagnose, part of it is, they're diagnosing sometimes what is largely a spiritual problem, and so they can't probe the body and figure out why. Um, and we as Christians recognize you know, that you know, Paul can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, as you're considering depression, uh, it's complicated because the Bible teaches that what happens to your body will affect your soul. So you think of Job in chapter 2, when his body was afflicted with all those sores and everything, it made his soul miserable. Likewise, the loss that he experienced in chapter one. So what, what happens to you in terms of physically and in your, in your life is going to affect your mood and make you sad, perhaps. But also, uh, what happens to the soul affects the body. That what the choices your soul makes 
affects your flesh. And one example we'll refer to again is Psalm 32. When David, after he committed adultery and murder, he said, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. And so anxious thoughts, depressed thoughts, you know, what we think in our soul is, and medical doctors have pointed this out, that uh, you know, what's going on in your brain, in your mind, what you're choosing to think about, I would say spiritually, uh, is going to affect your body, uh, and it can do so very significantly. Uh, that was, you know, Proverbs 17:22 is another reference. There, there are so many. A joyful heart is a is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Uh, when life is terrible, your body feels awful. So depression typically affects both body and soul. Um, depression will always have a spiritual component, and it may or may not have a physical component. Uh, and it could be the spiritual is causing the physical. It could be the physical is influencing the uh, spiritual. Ed Welsh writes that any spiritual problem, if left unattended, can slide into depression. Uh, but an important principle would be, and this is with many things that people call mental illness, is that for a believer, what your body is doing can't make you sin. And it can't stop you from turning to the Lord and growing spiritually. And that does not mean it's going to be easy and there's not going to be a struggle. But bodily weakness can't force you to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. In Galatians 5.16, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So you can't say, well, because this, I have depressive disorder, I have outbursts of anger. No, those are deeds of the flesh that don't take place for those who are walking in the Spirit. But we should be sympathetic. So most depression has spiritual causes. And something I'm going to do after I finish the summary of depression is take some scripture. I've already mentioned, like, sin and guilt can lead to depression. David... Was you, you could look at Psalm 32 with David, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. And he was depressed because he, was, you know, he would have been probably, that's not the word he uses, but that he was very sad and he was miserable. He would have probably lined up on severe depressive disorder uh, because as a consequence of sin. Now, I want to caution you, just because somebody is depressed, you don't say, well, who did you kill or who did you sleep with that you shouldn't have slept with? That's not all depression. That's some depression. But one of my earliest cases at IBCD in about 1994 was a man named Harold who came in, and he was late 60s, professing believer. Um, and for the last several months, he had been very depressed. Uh, he had also started drinking too much. Uh, he was having sharp conflict with his wife. He had been going to various psychiatrists, and they kept trying different medicines at higher and higher doses. At one point, um, he fell asleep while driving. I don't know if it was the alcohol or the medication. But this is like the most upstanding guy, leader in his church, running the Sunday school program, totally out of character for him. Um, uh, the, the, the medicines he was on, again, high doses of very powerful things as they'd been going from one medicine to the other. He had a son whom I knew in Saudi Arabia who encouraged him to get biblical counseling. He came in and in God's providence wound up with me as his counselor. Now, I was the new guy. You know, I'm, I, this is at the beginning of my uh, counseling center type work. And this guy came in older than my dad. 
And, but if we went through, and I'm just listening, and this is the, when, you're, when you are counseling somebody, uh, Proverbs 1813, who speaks before he hears it's a folly and a shame to him, you listen, you hear their story, and you're, you're trying to figure out why might he feel this way. And it could be something's gone wrong with him physically. I've had friends that just something happens and you, there's undefined depression where suddenly they're just sad and worn out. But in his case, as he kind of told his life story, and I'll summarize to keep moving, um, basically what I saw was a man who was busy and engaged and, and working hard and serving God, and he retired to live the good life, and he basically was living a self-centered life of you know, living in the retirement community, and every night there's a party, and let's go on cruises. And I'm not against parties, cruises, all those things, but just quit serving God, quit working hard, and I just made a suggestion, because I'm not omniscient, I can't say, ah, oh, you did it, you're the sinner, but I suggest that I have a theory, and the theory may be that the reason you're depressed is God made us to be productive, and God made you to serve others, and after spending up until your late 60s diligently serving God, you've been living for yourself completely, that's a wrong idea of retirement and older age, and again, fast into the story is that by the grace of God, um, actually he quit going, you know, he turned to biblical solutions and left AA. He came out of his depression. He went to his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist said, no, you have to be on this medication for the rest of your life. You could kill yourself. You could hurt others. Well, the psychiatrist actually said, I'll help you get off the medication, but I'll never treat you again because you're foolish. Well, Harold is still alive. He's in his mid-90s. <laughs> so far as I know, since 1995, he hasn't taken any of those medications. It's not that he's never been sad or never had a mood, but in his case, that would be an example where that as, as a believer, especially turning from the Lord, thinking unbiblically, living unbiblically, uh, when he repented and actually ended up getting ACDC certified in his uh, 70s, um, you know, that was the problem. But there are others. We're going to look in a little while about Psalm 42. This guy's sad because everything's going wrong. Uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to look at Psalm 73, where, again, life's not fair. Uh, life is unjust. In Jeremiah 17, it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes the flesh his strength. He will be like a bush in the desert. We'll not see when prosperity comes. And I'm actually supervising a lot of RTS students doing counseling. And their counsel <laughs> Some of these, a lot of these cases are... You know, people in their late 20s supervising people in their young 20s, single people. And some of them are going through breakups. And here's this girl. She thought she was going to marry the guy. And she'd probably been a little bit more physically friendly with the Well, she was more physically friendly with the guy than she should have been. Now he's broken up with her. She's really, really sad. Part of it is she'd put all of her hope in a person and even pleasing that person more than pleasing God and she's extremely sad. Or the person who is turning 30 and they're still not married and they, you know, they're concerned and, and they're, they're struggling with that. And so <sighs> Jeremiah 17 gives, I mean, it's, it's not wrong to feel a bit sad that your romantic life isn't working out as you dreamed, but at the same time, seven and eight says that the one who trusts in the Lord is like the tree planted by rivers of water that even has green leaves and bears fruit in the year of drought. And so, you know, putting your hope in people is going to make you sad. And some people are sad because of politics, for example. Don't trust in men, please. Um, I think there are some people where there may be physical issues. You look at Elijah, perhaps in 1 Kings 19, he's exhausted. 
Uh, I think a lot of pastors on Monday morning struggle with mild depression. You've, you've poured out your heart sometimes all day long. And uh, Elijah has done great things, and now Jezebel's going to kill him, and suddenly he's just, uh, yeah, but he, he has to rest, he has to sleep. And uh, I've seen cases physiologically that people losing sleep is extremely dangerous to the body. And I've had cases where, a couple cases where people losing sleep have spiraled down and even have become psychotic. Uh, and so often it is that in one case, the guy was upset about something actually in politics. He's dwelling upon it, it's upsetting him, you know, sad, depressed, whatever. And he keeps obsessing and he's spiraling down, 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 down until finally he's not sleeping and has to be hospitalized and drugs are used to get him out of it. Uh, there's a friend of mine who is a biblical counselor who, basically a jolly guy, uh, when he was in his early 70s, suddenly he had overwhelming depression. And it could be because he had uh, a lot of pain in his life physically from a surgery that didn't go right. Regardless of the cause, a guy who had been really stable, no previous history of depression, uh, became extremely depressed, clinically depressed, some would say. And um, there are cases where people have kind of sudden onset depression, often with no, no cause known. They didn't lose a family member, it just happened. And so part of being a counselor is to be humble. And being humble would mean if I don't know why this person is depressed, or if I don't know there's not something physical, I should not say, well, what's your spiritual problem? There may be something physical going on that I haven't discovered. Uh, it's affecting them spiritually. I can help with that. Um, and Dr. Hodges talks about undefined depression. You know, if somebody comes in, they say they're depressed, and he, they come to him as a medical doctor uh, in a, wearing a different hat than his biblical counselor hat, but then why do you feel depressed? And there are many people who have, you know, they feel, again, this terrible thing has happened, or I've done this bad thing, or life isn't fair. There's some people say, and we, the first case I remember having like this was actually a seminary student's wife about the same time as Harold, actually. And she's just extremely sad and depressed feeling. She says, I love my husband, I love my life. There's nothing I don't like about it, but I just had these overwhelming feelings of depression. And Dr. Hodges said there are some people who have that experience and we should not judge them like somehow you're all messed up spiritually and because I don't feel that way, I'm better than you. There may be something going on. Often we don't know, that's the humility part. There could be something happening physiologically that there is no test for. Um, and, and likewise, that uh, people are free to try medication. Uh, Back to 1 you know, Corinthians 13, 7, love, love hopes all things, love believes all things. Love assumes the best. Again, if somebody comes in and they've committed murder and adultery or they're screaming at the television because they're so angry at the government, there are spiritual issues to be worked on that may be affecting them emotionally. Uh, the, the drugs, there are tens of millions of people taking antidepressants. Um, like I said, the, they do affect moods. But there is no, the, the, the science is limited. As I've already said, that there's not some test they can give you saying, well, let's just bring you up to this level of chemistry in your brain, everything will be fine. Um, in the best case, drugs would be a common grace help to deal with the symptoms of depression. Uh, the science, according to Dr. Hodges and things I've read, 
is that for people who are extremely depressed, which is probably 10% or so, the drugs can be effective in bringing moods under control. And sometimes you'll be with somebody who is so down that if something like that would stabilize their mood, probably a good idea. Again, I don't prescribe drugs. I hope to find doctors who have a biblical perspective who would realize that in, in extreme depression, the drugs may help someone to have some mood stability. It will not ever deal with the spiritual causes that may be behind the depression. That's what we do. And there's not always a spiritual cause, but I think it's rare that there's not, um, or at least a spiritual issue. Um, the, the research shows, and like there's something from Newsweek many years ago, showing how when you take into account the placebo effect, placebo effect means somebody starts taking the drug Chemically, the drug takes a certain number of days to work, but 10 minutes after they take the drug, they feel better. It's not because of the drug, it's because of their hope they're getting the drug to work. And they're saying when, they, when you do research on antidepressants, and again, this is not biblical counseling speaking, this is psychiatrists and scientists saying that for people who are mildly to moderately depressed, there's no evidence the drugs do any good at all other than perhaps the placebo effect. For people who are extremely depressed, the drugs can help. Now, Dr. Hodges says if 10% of those who take the meds are helped, we should be glad. On the other hand, the drugs have side effects. Uh, there's an article I have here, uh, I think it's out of the New York Times, about how some people who get on those drugs have a very difficult time getting off. And uh, so it's something that most of us want to avoid. But I'd say if you're counseling someone, don't tell them to flush the drugs because if someone's on those drugs and these drugs are affecting their brains and they need someone medically trained, if, if they make that decision to get off the drugs, they need to do that under the supervision of someone medically trained. Likewise, it's not my decision for them to get off the drugs. Someone like Harold would say, you know, I think the cause of my depression is being dealt with, therefore I'd like to see if I can get by without the drugs because I don't like how they make me feel and I don't like the messing with my brain and my body that way. Well, you tell your doctor that, and you work out with him how to taper it off safely. Um, they don't solve things. Um, depression often works in cycles, and again, these are observations that uh, doctors make, and I've made watching people too. Um, and Jay Adams actually talked about this in one of his earliest books, how ordinary sadness and depression, uh, he, he drew a spiral where you, know, you have a problem, and rather than dealing with the problem biblically, uh, you deal with it unbiblically, with unbiblical thinking and actions. And then that brings new problems, <laughs> and so you spiral further down. So you know, the girl that got broke up with, um, rather than maybe repenting of making an idol of the guy and doing things with the guy that one day when she gets married she will regret with her real husband, uh, she just feels sorry for herself. She's chasing the guy who doesn't want to be chased anymore, uh, obsessing over that. Uh, and then because she doesn't find him, well now she rebounds to a guy who's even worse <laughs> to try to fill the gap. And then she sins more, which makes her feel more badly. And so she's you know down, down, down she goes. Um, Jay Adams also talked about how one can spiral out. And he would use the example um, Again, he used the example, women are more prone to depression typically than men. There are different statistics of like 25% or something like that, but 
over time, not at any given moment. But um, some of it can be, you know, like if you know, inactivity like Harold make, is depressing. And sometimes this person is spiraled down pretty far and it's just man or woman just say, okay, there's no way tomorrow we can expect you to perform at 100%. But let's tie for 20, which would be 20% more than yesterday and see if the success of that is God helps you and you do that in dependence upon him where you can spiral back out of the depression over time. Um, and so another aspect would be that people who are prone to depression, and this is not just Christians, this is just in general, depression tends to work in cycles in that, and this is kind of a funny, again, the scientific studies will just say, well, you know, after a year, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting the exact statistics, so I'm, I'm approximating, but it's kind of like you can say, well, people who get psychotherapy after a year, 60% are better. But the problem is that people, when people are taking medicines after a year, about 60% are better. And the people who do nothing after a year, about 60% are better. And the way God has made us, for most of us, we are resilient. And over time, our body, soul recovers and people come out of it, which is also even when you're doing the right thing, it often is just a slow process coming out of it. And like the worst I had from 20 years ago, it went on for several months, maybe more than a year. And what I remember is kind of, I'm living in this world of black and white and just kind of gradually over a long period of time, it gradually is like some of the movies you've seen, not rapidly like The Wizard of Oz or something, but just this kind of gradual from, from the black and white to color beginning to feel a little bit more energy, interest, enjoyment of the things I should have enjoyed. Um, you know, people who have experienced loss of, of a loved one, often that's how it works. That's how God has made us. Now, part of our job is to encourage people in that journey and not judge them because, you know, they're a third of the way back and, you know, if you just had enough faith, everything would be right. You know, there's a false health and prosperity gospel that isn't just for money of the the nitwits on television sometimes, but it can be, if you just had enough faith, you'd be deliriously happy all the time. Uh, that's just not the reality of the struggle. We're going to see that in a moment when we look at uh, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Uh, depression can be very serious. One thing, if you're talking to someone who's depressed, you'll be wise to ask if there's any suicidal ideation. You know, do they have a specific plan? Do they have the lethal means available? Have they rehearsed what they're doing? Uh, there can be cases where this is where you get the government involved. You think someone is an immediate threat to themselves or others. You call 911 and they get taken to the psych ward as a place where they could be safe. Uh, other times it would be, you think, in their home or their environment, there may be people around. These are tough calls, but you want to err on the side of safety. Um, if you want to start counseling people, I can't promise that never will you have a counselee who takes his or her own life. Uh, but uh, that's part of the risk you take that you can't control that. You can be faithful and that may still happen. Um, I will also say that if you want to counsel depressed people or you have a family member who is depressed, it's really hard work. We talked yesterday some about you know, how draining counseling can be. Depressed people are not fun to be around. <laughs> generally speaking, and you have to persist. Sometimes what they desperately need is a friend who will still love them even though they're not very lovable right now. 
Uh, we're going to talk later about depressed people are constantly, you know, Satan is a liar and a murderer, and depressed people are constantly telling themselves lies. And even though they, they know what the truth is, they're not telling themselves the truth. And your job as their friend, their spouse, their counselor, is to keep speaking those truths they know to their hearts um, and to persist in caring for them. And, and also knowing that God's word offers hope. So you know, as you listen, uh, you want to you know, take time to uh, listen well. Sometimes if they're saying things that are untrue or ungodly, you may have to gently correct them. Here's the verse I mentioned earlier, Proverbs 25, 20. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a troubled heart. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that our suffering enables us to comfort others who suffer. Uh, and I will say for myself that like the sadness, extreme sadness I experienced starting 20 years ago and it's not entirely ended with our sons, but I could not care for people as well if I hadn't been through that. I don't like that I went through it. I don't like that I'm still to some degree struggling with those things. Uh, but it can be really hard if you've never been down that road to understand the comfort that someone who is deeply sad uh, has. You know, people talk about Job's friends, and you know, the best thing they did was they sat with Job and kept their mouths shut for quite a while, and once they opened their mouths, they were like the vinegar on soda. Um, you know, asking questions, you'll be looking for spiritual causes, you'll be looking at the possibility of sending them to a doctor. Often it's good to find out what's the pattern. There's some people who have this pattern like every five years, a wife would say, yeah, we went through this five years ago. And sometimes what you're trying to do as a counselor with problems is you're not going to eliminate the problem entirely, but it's kind of like if the last depressive problem was like a 7.5 on the Richter scale problem. When the rumbling starts, let's see if we can enact wise and biblical measures that this could be a 4.7 instead of a 7.5. You know, let, let's, what are the things we can do to make this shorter and not as intense as last time in you know, biblical wisdom and care and, and, and friendship? Um, Sometimes it's very practical in terms of even being sure the counselee's physical needs are being met. Caroline, sometimes in counseling women who would struggle with depression, would be to take them for a walk. Uh, lack of physical activity can be depressing, and getting out and moving around, that's where the body and soul are connected, can be really helpful. Uh, you know, it could be a friend who comes as the Titus II woman and helps her with her chores, not doing her chores while she sits and watches you. But you know, helping, helping them move ahead, and again, to be that faithful friend who stays when things are really, really hard. Um, I think some of the other things to do to help, I'll, I'll address from some of the passages we will go through. Um, and so, if you want to jump, and I warned Pastor Dwayne that. I don't have this organized in a way like you would often say, okay, it's been 50 minutes, now we'll stop. I'll just cut the salami when it's time to cut the salami, <laughs> and then we'll resume after a break. I plan to land the plane at some point, but it's not all necessarily neat. But um, there's a, the first thing I really studied on depression was back when I was living in Saudi Arabia, I was beginning to counsel. There were very few biblical counseling books, and some of you may be familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, uh, Spiritual Depression. 
And in that book, he begins, or very early on, he goes to Psalm 42. And I think Psalm 42 is a passage, Psalm 42 and actually Psalm 43, illustrate the experience of the person who's struggling with depression and how to fight depression. And uh, he has very famous sermons on this. And Lloyd-Jones is a little bit, I guess, like my friend Dr. Hodges in that he had his feet in both worlds and that he studied as a medical doctor and was really advancing in that field as a young man in the early 20th century. And then he was such a gifted preacher, they pulled him out of you know, a key position as a medical doctor to be a pastor, which um, was his calling to his life. But they called him the doctor. And I think he did tend to analyze people's spiritual problems like a medical doctor would try to diagnose a patient, and that was part of what made this series very, very effective. Um, and something that I see in this psalm, actually, these two psalms, is you have a pattern, and the pattern itself is very profound, in that you have, like if you want to open in your Bible to Psalm 42 and 43 to follow along with me a little bit, you have a pattern where the psalmist complains for four or five verses, and then he reflects on the answer to his complaint. Then he reflects again on his complaints for four or five verses. Then he tells himself the same answer he said the first time. And that's Psalm 42. And then Psalm 43 is exactly the same pattern with even the same refrain where he complains for four more verses and then goes back and tells himself again what he needs to hear. And, and my understanding would be that this, the psalm is kind of showing you how to fight depression. That's what Lloyd-Jones was saying as well. Um, and so the psalmist's lament, we start, this is really famous, by the way. I remember like when I was a young Christian, they had this Maranatha song, as the deer pants for the water. So you're nodding your head who are older and remember the song. And I always kind of got this picture of happy Bambi, um, you know, going to the stream and thumpers there and it's all so good. And I realized when you, I study the psalm, it's like, no, this is the scene where there's a fire. <laughs> this is the scene where there's no water and the deer is panting. The deer can't find water. It's, it's dying of thirst. That's the, the illustration of the experience of the psalmist. So the first four verses, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and pour out in my soul within me. For I used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. So here's his lament. And in verses one to four, it's a drought. Uh, he's, he's remembering better days. Uh, he, he's remembering when he used to be with the people of God. And, and now he just feels like God is so far away. And that's a common human experience, isn't it? Like intellectually, I know the Bible. Intellectually, I know God is there. But, and people say, I just don't feel the presence of God anymore. I feel like God is very far away. And sometimes it'll be because life stinks. And we're tempted by unbelief to say, how could God be for me when my life is so awful? And you know, in this case, he's, we don't know his circumstances of the psalmist. And you think of David you know, in the days when he was running away from uh, Saul, or Absalom even, and he's away from the holy city, and he's away from you know, the, the physical presence of God. But again, he's remembering better days, and feasts, and joy, and 
it makes me think of, you know, we had a lot of guys in the Navy in our church in San Diego, and here's the guy who's been on deployment in a submarine for 11 months. He's remembering his family. He's remembering his church, and he's just sad. And, and the misery is multiplied. You know, okay, I have nothing to drink. What do I have? My tears have been my food all day long. And then his enemies mock him. This comes up in the other stances as well. When they say to me all day long, where is your God? You know, the unbelieving world is saying, you know, if God was on your side, why is your life so miserable? And, and so you've got these other voices. Um, and you know, so this psalm is, I think, illustrating. You talk about Psalm 32 is sin can make you depressed. But this is just loss can make you depressed. Just life going really, really badly. We don't even know the details of his circumstances. Um, unbelievers mocking our faith and feeling tempted to despair. And yet the psalmist is doing the right thing. He, it's, it's not wrong to express your struggles and your complaint to God. At least he's talking to God. And as we're going to see, he's, he's going to do the right thing. But I'm, I'm going to skip the refrain for a moment and go to the next lament in verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me when they say to me all day long, where is your God? Sounds a bit like the first one, doesn't it? And some of you, as I'm reading this, out of this many people may say, yeah, that's how I feel this morning. That's kind of why I came, <laughs> hoping somebody would have something to say to me. Well, part of what God is saying to you in the Word is you're not alone in the experience you're having, that real believers struggle like this. There's actually another psalm that's much worse than this. I'm going to probably show you in a minute. Um, that you know, the, psalm, the psalmist that's using in my, my version, the, the despair, it's kind of ironic in the first stanza, he is dying of thirst. Now he's drowning, which is no better. <laughs> and you now wave after wave is over me. It's actually similar language that's used in Jonah when he's cast out of the boat and the waves overtake him. And by the way, Jonah, like the psalmist, cries out to God in his utter despair. Um, the wave after wave where, okay, you know, you have trouble with one of your kids, and then you get laid off from your job, and then, uh, you know, health problem for your spouse, and just, and you think, I've had more than I can endure. And then one more thing, like, like a lady works for IBCD, then her house caught on fire. Um, and you just feel like Jonah sinking down, 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 about to hit bottom, and there's no big fish coming to get you. And then, you know, the, the language, my bones are being crushed. And this guy, I'm going to use the other example after the break, is in, in Naomi and Ruth. That problem is when you, you know the Bible, you know ultimately God is allowing this to happen. When, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, um, and you have enemies who are hatefully speaking of you, which is a lot of what it is to be a Christian in our culture right now. Um, and so you wonder, has God forgotten me? You know, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Um, speaking personally. So ever since 
we learned Caroline was pregnant with our first son, which would have been almost 40 years ago. We've prayed for him. He's not a believer. It can be discouraging. Why pray again? Why keep trying? Why isn't God hearing? Uh, it's a real struggle of faith sometimes to persist when you're not seeing the results. And lamentations, you know, the people in exile, will you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so long? So he has these yearnings. He, he senses God isn't fulfilling. And I'm not going to do as much with Psalm 43, but he, it's the same thing there. Vindicate me, O God. Please my cause against the ungodly nation. Deliver me from deceitful and unjust men. And you, know, you are my strength, O God. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Um, you know, three cycles of this, which I think is going to be really profound as we keep going. But again, one good thing for the psalmist is when he had trouble, he was driven to God. What do you do when you feel sad, when you even feel like God has abandoned you? Don't run from God, run to God. As an act of the will. It doesn't mean you're going to feel like it even. And then I want to talk about the refrain. And this is so interesting. After the first lament, he says in verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And then you verse 11, guess what? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Okay, now in Psalm 43, so he's going into overtime. And verse 5 of Psalm 43, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Um... Lloyd-Jones, his famous statement you've probably heard before, he says, when you're struggling with depression, you need to stop listening to yourself and you need to start talking to yourself. And that's what the psalmist does. He gets it from these psalms. The psalmist in verses 1 to 4 is listening to himself complain, and in verse 5 he talks to himself and reminds himself of who God is and what God's promises are. And our feelings, and th th this is where counsel can help because sometimes somebody is so caught up in talking to themselves, the voice of God can come through you as a friend, reading the scripture to them, praying with them, reminding them of the truth. Um, and then by faith, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. It's like Elisha when he saw the hordes of the enemy coming and the servant was afraid and says, open his eyes that he can see there's more of us, more for us than there are of them. You know, we, we need faith in, in a world where it seems like we're losing or in our lives individually where everything seems to be against us. You know, and some of what the psalm does, even in the lament, can be helpful where he's remembering better days. He's remember the things he has to be thankful for. He's remembering the, the loving kindness of God. Even in his laments, there are these little... Uh, kind of beacons of light that pop out, like in verse 8. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. He will, His song will be with me in the night. Uh, you know, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the lyre I will praise you. So he's looking ahead. It's eschatological in a sense. I, I, you know, I, I know there's hope in the future. There's a reminder of God's loving kindness. Um, you know, it's, it's Jonah when he turned to the Lord as well, you know, that he's remembering God even when he is in the, in the belly of the fish. 
Isaiah talks about how a nursing mother could sooner forget her child than God who has covenant love for you can forget you. Now, when I don't feel that way, I need to keep telling myself those things. Uh, one thing that I do in my morning prayer routine is I just go through the Lord's Prayer as kind of an outline for prayer. And the, the phrase I get stuck on immediately is, Our Father. Do I really see God as a Father who loves me? Do I really see a God as a Father who cares for me? Because sometimes when life stinks, I don't feel like that. I, I have a wrong view of God, that He's mean, <laughs> that He must not care or my life would be better. And so I have to remember the truth, to, to, to answer the lies of my flesh with the truth of the Word of God. You know, when Job says, though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. So we're fighting for faith. Um, and then a really profound thing to me in these Psalms and it says a lot about how you know, Ed Welsh's book on depression calls depression a stubborn darkness, where it's such a fight. Quite like, like, I do a lot of conflict counseling with couples, and sometimes you can see, like, in two weeks, things just transform immediately as the gospel is applied to how they treat each other. And it's so much fun to do that kind of counseling. <sighs> Helping someone who's depressed, even when it works, is a long battle, typically. And that's where I think here, you, you, not only must you talk to yourself and stop listening to yourself, you have to keep talking to yourself. The psalm doesn't end with verse 5. I mean, he answers the problem in verse 5. Hope in God. I will praise him again. Okay. No. He starts lamenting again, and then he has to tell himself a second time. Then he has to go to another psalm, and a third time, tell himself the same thing. There's a lot of, a lot of truth in this. One is we tend to be impatient people. That's, again, the culture. What, what's the pill I can take that will make this better? Uh, what's the experience I can have? I'll go to Disney World. I'll do whatever. And somehow that'll make my life better. I'll find a husband or a wife or you know, whatever I think. Um, there's not, in many cases, there's not something that can make the depression go away. It may take time. Another thing I think is really important is that he doesn't come up with three different answers. He keeps coming back to the same answer. <laughs> And that's really important because I think some people say, well, you know, I tried reading and going to church and studying the Bible. I still feel badly. Well, do it some more. Because they want to say, there's got to be something else I can try. And again, if you want to try medicine, you can try medicine. It's not going to solve the problem. It may make you feel better or may not. But only God can satisfy you. Only God can help you. But again, I love this about the psalm, that the struggle is real, it's ongoing, and it's, it's not quickly solved. But again, depressed people, when they don't feel better quickly, they go to counseling, well, it didn't help because I met with the guy twice and I still feel badly. Well, if he's pointing to the Word of God, keep going. <laughs> keep remembering who God is and what His promises are and what His nature is and, and, and the hope you have. And tell yourself again and again and again. You know, keep going to church even though you may not feel like getting up in the morning. We have people we're counseling. They don't want to get up in the morning. They're too sad. Well, go seek the means of grace where it may be found. But it, it may be a struggle. Um, a psalm that used to scare me is Psalm 88. It's the saddest psalm in the entire Psalter. I don't know if you've ever studied it very carefully. I've been told there's even in Psalters hymns where people sing this. But they, they did sing it. But I'm not going to read the whole thing, but most of the Psalms, like even in this, in Psalm 42 and 43, there's kind of a gradual uplift with some hope. 
And in Psalm 88, he's complaining, I've cried night and day before you. Hear my cry. My soul has enough troubles. My life is drawn down to Sheol. I'm wrecked among those who go to the pit, forsaken among the dead, cut off. Um, he's lamenting. And you're waiting for the happy ending. My wife only wants to watch films that have happy endings. Um, but how does the psalm end? There's no happy ending in Psalm 88 other than the guy is now in heaven and he's fine. But that day was not a day that ended well for him. But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted, about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. I've, they have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Amen. But I actually used to be afraid to show that to depressed people. It actually is encouraging to most of them. It's like, I mean, somebody else felt the way I did? That I could go to church and still feel badly? I could do my devotions and still not feel any better? This guy feels better now. <laughs> but he didn't feel better that day. And that's the struggle. So I know we have a break. I just want to bring one thing back and then we'll take a break and then we'll talk about a narrative that illustrates this. But Something that I really appreciate in the Old Testament, when Jesus in Luke 24 went through the Old Testament and showed his disciples how it all points to Christ, I just wanted to bring our minds to the fact we have a Savior who was a man of sorrows. He, we have a Savior who can sympathize with us in our struggles and our weaknesses. And even from the, you know, when you read Psalm 42, how the man is thirsty as the deer plants for the water streams, you know, from the cross he said, I thirst. Jesus, the psalmist complains because he's far away from the people of God and the sanctuary of God. And Jesus left the presence of the Father to be with us and even was forsaken of the Father. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was overwhelmed with grief at Gethsemane uh, with sweating drops of blood, pour, sweat pouring out, however you look at it. Um, he was mocked by his enemies. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he delight in him. He was forsaken of God. He does sympathize with us in our troubles. We have a Savior who understands and cares. But also, not only is he, he's experienced what the psalmist describes, he's the one who delivers you. He's the answer to the psalmist's prayers. Because he came and said that from me flow streams of living water. If you're thirsty, come unto me. If you're weary, come unto me. If you're hungry, come unto me. Even in the Old Testament, the provision of water in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that was a... Christ was the one through whom Moses gave the water to the people. He is that living water. And those who come to him will never thirst again. He's the one who pours out his spirit to us. That's what you know, Paul said, all that drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's the one who is the hope when we feel like we're in despair. We will one day praise him because he is coming again. He is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth and he is actually even now the new temple and we can dwell with him he is our light and our joy and so for the one who struggles we have a savior again he he sympathizes with us in our struggles but he's also the one who delivers us from our struggles by entering into them for us by redeeming us through his blood on the cross but also giving us the satisfaction and the joy and the peace for which we yearn, which is accessible to us in this life, not always without struggle, but is assured for us in the life to come.
And that is our hope. Amen.